You're about to hear a classic Curbsiders episode, and if you haven't heard it yet, you're in for a real treat. And if you have heard it already, well then listen again, because these are so packed with pearls, there's no way you remember everything. But if you still just need new episodes, well, head over to our Patreon where we've already released something like 16 to 18 brand new episodes, and we're releasing two new ones every month. Plus, you can join our Discord, hang out with the team, ask us questions. It's a lot of fun over there, patreon.com slash curbsiders. And we wanted to let you know that starting January 1st, 2024, VCU Health has let us know that they're going to have to start charging a small fee for CME credit. We understand why they need to do this, and we thank them for all the years of free CME credit for our listeners. We will continue to offer CME for episodes going forward through VCU Health at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. The Curbsiders Podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like moral hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Welcome back to The Curbsiders. I'm Dr. Matthew Frank Watto, here with my very good friend, Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams. Hi, Paul. How are you doing tonight? (laughs) I've been downgraded from great, but other than that, I'm doing okay. How are you? (laughs) You're still great. Uh, Great, very good. To me, you know, same thing. I I didn't mean to downgrade you. Sure. Tonight on the show, Paul, we're talking about disorders of the gut-brain axis, which I think we're pronouncing DIGBA. Uh, we'll see if it catches on. And uh, of course, what we mean by this, IBS, functional dyspepsia, and cyclic vomiting syndrome. Our guest is the great Dr. Xiaojing Iris Wang. She's back for a third time on the show. And in just a moment, uh, I'll, I'll tell you a little bit more, give a little more of a teaser. But first, Paul, what is it that we do on the Curbsiders? Sure. Just in case the audience doesn't know at this point, we are the internal medicine podcast. We use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. And Matt, why don't you, I was going to say finish that tease, but that feels like a real gross sentence. So why don't you finish um, (laughs) telling the audience what we talked about and who we talked to? Well, we, we go through three cases and we talk all about these uh, disorders of the gut brain axis. Particularly, we talk about how to approach them in a very patient-centered way, which is what I most appreciated about this because oftentimes these patients are stigmatized or, I guess, told they just have anxiety, and that's really not it. So Dr. Wang did a great job of really telling us how she counsels patients and giving us just a wide range of therapeutic options for functional dyspepsia, for um, the the for IBS and for cyclic vomiting. And there we did talk about some of the diagnostics, which really, Paul, there's not as much diagnostics here. You know, it's it's a pretty minimal diagnostic. Most of it can be done in primary care. Right. And keeping with the theme, it's really talking and listening to the patient because we talk a lot about letting the patient's symptom presentation sort of guide what your therapeutics look like. So it's not... It's not algorithmic. It's not uh, cookbook medicine. You actually have to listen and listen to what symptoms are most bothersome, and that will guide your treatment a lot of the time. So really fascinating and helpful stuff. Our guest, Dr. Xiaojing Iris Wang. She is a clinical gastroenterologist with a passion for teaching, 
While she's a general gastroenterologist, her clinical and research interests are in functional GI disorders or disorders of the gut-brain axis. She's currently an assistant professor at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota during the week and an amateur baker during the weekends. Paul, do you have a pun? I do not. Okay. (laughs) All right. So before we get to the interview, a reminder that this and most episodes are available for free CME for all healthcare professionals through VCU Health at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. And so now without further ado, let's get to it. Iris, so good to have you back. The audience probably knows you by now. I feel like maybe we just need to officially bring you into the team, but Remind them, in case they haven't heard you before or they forget, remind them and tell them one hobby or interest outside of medicine. You got to be careful where you invite me to be part of the team. I will totally take you up on that offer. Um, my name is Xiao Jing Iris Wang. I am a assistant professor in the Division of Gastroenterology at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Um, My clinical duties are a general gastroenterologist, but my clinical niche and research interests are in disorders of the gut-brain axis, and I'm so excited to be talking to you guys about that today. Hobby-wise, I am still an amateur baker, but I am producing many more carbs every weekend as we speak. (laughs) Good for you. Good for you. Stressful times, you know? Carbs make the world go around. (laughs) Iris, you had shared an anecdote with us before we start recording about karaoke. So I'm going to change up my usual question and actually ask me what your go-to karaoke song is. Or you know, And if you don't have one, now's the time to make one up. So I'm going to ask you to commit to your, your go-to karaoke song. Do you really think that I would have invited you to karaoke without a song for every specific occasion, depending on who I'm karaokeing with? You get one. Um, Flow Rida, Club Can't Handle Me. Wow. That's a solid choice. All right. I mean, that mm-hmm. was what I was going to guess, actually. <laughs> Thank you. Paul, Thank you. dare I ask your, what is your karaoke go-to song? I mean, I, Bon Jovi's Dead or Alive. I feel like I don't know why you wouldn't. Solid choice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thank you. Uh, it used to be Total Eclipse of the Heart, but I think now that's kind of played out. But it's that, also that for really me, long. But so fun. So fun. True. Well, Elena, Elena couldn't be here tonight. Our great super producer, Dr. Elena Gibson, who really put this thing together, couldn't be here because of clinical duties. And uh, she did want to send in a pick of the week. So she said, this week, I will recommend the documentary Searching for Sugar Man, a story of the life and work of the 1970s artist Rodriguez, which is also, rec- and she also recommends listening to the Rodriguez albums. So I can only imagine, I, I've never heard of this, Paul. It's, it's probably something hip because it's Elena, and uh, I, will, I will check it out and be a cooler person for it. What I think you, you would think? like it. It's, it's actually a really great documentary. I, it's a movie I have seen, so it can't be that hip, but I liked it a lot. <laughs> I, I would put you, you and Elena in the category. Most of your picks of the week, I've like, never heard of it, so you're, you're making me more cultured by, by hearing them. Well, Iris, we have a a lot to get to tonight. So I think we're just going to jump right into a case from Cashlack Memorial. And of course, the great Dr. Paul Williams will, he will take us there. Yeah, of course. So let's talk about Ms. Floyd first. So Ms. Floyd is a 32-year-old. She has no significant past medical history. She's coming to you with ongoing episodes of epigastric pain and nausea for the past year. Her symptoms are frequently worsened by eating, but exacerbating foods are not consistent. 
She describes one normal bowel movement most days and has no dysphagia, no weight loss, no heartburn symptoms. She has tried calcium carbonate and bismuth at home intermittently and without improvement. The workup so far by her excellent primary care doctor has included a negative stool H. pylori antigen, a normal CBC, a normal CMP, and Ms. Floyd is beginning to become frustrated uh, regarding the lack of an explanation for her symptoms thus far. So astute listeners will know the title of the episode and know that we're sort of hitting into discussion of... I. Maybe this is my first question. How what are what are we calling what we're talking about tonight? I've heard there's sort of functional um, disorders. Now there's disorders of the gut-brain axis. My which we're going with Depigaba is that <laughs> the gastroenterologist abbreviated? Yeah, yeah. What's the so cool what are, way what are to we, pronounce what are we it as well? <laughs> I think it's still a tongue twister that I often get uh, incorrect. But the official name for these disorders is disorders of the gut-brain axis which I, I may have called interaction before, but there is an interaction there. But the official name is disorders of the gut-brain axis. Also, before we get too far ahead of ourselves, I have thought about my pick of the week for like two months, so you have to let me give <laughs> oh, it. Oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so, uh, how, how rude of me. All right, let's hear it. I mean, you, you know this is like the most important part of this for me. Um, so I have to recommend this video game um, called It Takes Two. It, come, it came out on PS5, and it, it's very on theme with what we're talking about because it is a two-player cooperative game and talks about kind of therapy. And it, it's like about this couple that's about to get divorced, and then they're forced into this situation where they play through uh, a cooperative game in order to um, kind of uh, figure out where they went wrong. The graphics are amazing. Uh, the play is actually very balanced between the two players and if you have any sort of like marital issues even minor ones oh this is this is like the place to go to solve them so high recommend also awesome wow. mini games throughout right i, I had to get have that out. never heard of that <laughs> paul you're the gamer you're the gamer on the show have you heard of this i have i unfortunately don't have friends with which i could play it but it's i've heard good things <laughs> I'll come Matt, over, Paul. Step up. <laughs> <laughs> we'll work on a relationship together. It'll be perfect. Yeah, the, the, the show has created a major rift between me and Paul. We really need to. We really need this game. I mean, so thank you. Let's Iris. be honest. We wouldn't talk without the show. So it, it's probably helping us. <laughs> okay, back well, to business. I'm sorry. Yeah. So disorders of the gut brain axis. So these were formerly known as functional GI disorders, but then the title functional has become very. Uh, burdened with bias. And so there's this move to rebrand these disorders because we now know a little bit more about why they happen the way they happen. And it does have to do with the interaction between the nervous system in the gut and the nervous system in the brain. But the formal definition are that these are characterized, these are disorders that are characterized by symptom clusters with limited findings on, of structural abnormalities on diagnostic testing. And that symptom cluster is going to be really important as we keep talking. Pathophysiology, we think, you know, is a combination of altered motility, visceral hypersensitivity, a change in the epithelial barrier of the gut, mucosal immune dysfunction, microbiome disturbance, or, and gut central nervous system neural processing. That's a lot of stuff, um, but it's really important to remember that these all kind of interplay to produce the symptoms in these patients. That was a lot. So that's really not how I tell my patients about them, right? So when I talk to my patients about one of these disorders, I tell them, look, there's nothing that looks wrong on our testing, but that doesn't mean things are working correctly. And while we're getting better at testing for 
function or motility, testing for sensation, for hypersensitivity, for microbiome, all of that is far behind in terms of clinical relevance. And so just because the testing is normal, that just means we're not using or we don't have the right test right now to diagnose you. That doesn't mean nothing is wrong with you. And, and I do have to qualify that you want to say that, you know, you, you are ruling out these structural things that will kill them, right? So you want to make sure you're allaying their fears, but validating the symptoms and the impact that these symptoms are having on their lives. This just reminds me, we talked about long COVID recently, and it was the same kind of thing. We, we Often the testing is negative. You, you don't find anything, but that doesn't mean there's nothing wrong. And like some of the other disorders on the show that we've talked about, any kind of chronic pain syndrome or fatigue, there's just like we don't have necessarily diagnostic tests. And a lot of the times you're just working with the patient um, and trying a lot of things. So I imagine that's going to have some of a model here. But by the time patients get to you, they've probably been pretty demoralized, I, I imagine, because you're you're pretty up there on the on these specialist chain. They might have even seen another GI before they get to you, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, and actually, as a fellow, these patients caused a lot of anxiety, right? And in preparing for talking to everyone about these disorders, I, I wanted to, I, I've been thinking a lot and reflecting a lot about why these patients cause anxiety for providers. Because we can deny that all we want and say that there's bias, but it's true that we we see a patient who has bloating, chronic pain, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, and we kind of turn up our hackles. And I think, you know, a couple of reasons that I've come up with, at least that pertain to me, is that these, these diseases aren't diseases that we are taught a lot throughout training. Um, part of it is, is, is because they don't kill patients, right? And, and that's one of the good things about them. But because they don't kill patients, they also don't show up on board exams. Because they don't tend to put patients in the hospital, as we go through residency training and we're mostly kind of inpatient based in our, our heavy kind of clinical learning and education, we don't learn about these patients. We see them as, oh, these disorders don't fit an inpatient diagnosis. And so they don't have to be worried about right now while my COPD patient is crashing, right? So a lot of the times we don't, uh, they, they're not necessarily an inpatient priority. And so we don't learn about that. And so perhaps we don't have the same kind of heuristics um, that we use for a lot of our other conditions. Um, and what I mean by that is when you see a patient with sepsis, you know, heart rate increases, blood pressure decreases, you're, you've been trained and taught to recognize that as sepsis. And you have an algorithm in your mind that you can automatically go down to say, okay, bolus fluids, check for an infection. Let's get source control. Let's start antibiotics while we do that, right? Those are kind of now mental shortcuts because as inpatient providers and residents and inpatient services, we do that a lot. Similarly, with outpatient disorders, like, you know, we have the center criteria. And so when we have a sore throat patient come in, we, are, we can have a mental like anchoring for that disorder. These patients don't fit in neat boxes. And so we don't often have those heuristics and those boxes and algorithms to go down. And that's sort of what I want to make sure everyone has tonight is that we can have those. We can understand these disorders a little bit better. We do see patterns in these patients. And so when you do see those patterns, 
let me tell you, you know, let us share with you what the algorithms are for you to go down so that it becomes a little less anxiety provoking. And what we're going to do tonight, audience, we're the, the first case here, we're going to talk about functional dyspepsia. The second case, we're going to talk about more of the irritable bowel syndromes. And then finally, we're going to talk about a case of somebody who has recurrent episodes of vomiting. And hopefully, we'll give you some tips, some, some diagnostics that you can do, and then how you can talk to patients and how you can think about approaching the treatment for that. So, Iris, this first case here, this person... It's a 32-year-old. They're having epigastric pain, nausea, negative H. pylori test. Like, where do we go from here? How do you think about the initial workup? Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about functional dyspepsia because we can put that label on, but actually it's helpful to act further subdivide that label of functional dyspepsia into the two Rome 4 subclasses. And all of the criteria we're going to use today are based on Rome 4 criteria. And before we go into that, most of them, you have to fulfill the criteria for at least three months with symptom onset at least six months prior to diagnosis. That's, that's sort of um, blanket across all Rome disorders. So for functional dyspepsia, you have to have one or more of either bothersome postprandial fullness, bothersome early satiation, bothersome epigastric pain, bothersome epigastric burning, and kind of no evidence of structural disease, including an upper endoscopy to explain the symptoms. That doesn't mean everybody needs an upper endoscopy, but we will get there in just a second. So we can break down functional dyspepsia into what's called postprandial distress syndrome or epigastric pain syndrome. And these are excellently named, right? One of them, you get postprandial distress. So you have to have the pain after you eat. Um, usually severe enough to impact usual activities. And the other one, you have epigastric pain. The other thing about postprandial distress syndrome is bothersome early satiation. And I, I love asking this question to all of my trainees on rounds. So the difference between early satiety and early satiation is something that I, I don't think I learned until I was a fellow. Paul knows, right, Paul? I no, no, I didn't know satiation was a word until about five minutes ago. <laughs> yeah, I, I learned it in fellowship, right? So, actually, a lot of what we consider satiety um, and call satiety is actually satiation. So, early satiation means that a patient eats a smaller amount of food and feels full. And so, when we talk about like heart failure symptoms of, oh, are you eating a small size meal and getting full? That's actually early satiation, that is not early satiety. Early satiety means that you are actually full for longer. This is kind of important mm -hmm. because we, we can correlate that sometimes, not 100%, but in my mind, right? Expert opinion, not guideline-based. Early satiation makes me think that the stomach is not able to stretch as wide as it used to or that there's something preventing it or bothering it when it's doing what's called accommodation, which is increasing its size in order to accommodate that food bolus. Um, I just defined a word using the same word, but you're with me. Um, <laughs> but we can test for that, right? And that's different from gastric emptying, where a delay in gastric emptying could cause early satiety, where you eat and then you're just full for a really long time because the food's just sitting there and not leaving. Why is this important? It's because functional dyspepsia and gastroparesis kind of overlap a little bit in terms of symptoms. And sometimes the only defining characteristic is this like normal gastric emptying study. 
But part of that is because gastric accommodation testing is not widely available. And when we actually do that testing, we can see abnormalities in one, in both, um, or a combination of, of that. So I, I like to kind of uh, characterize the different difference in those two terms, mostly because it helps us understand gastric function. So this then becomes- I'm I sorry, just want to make sure, can I try to summarize to make sure I got it? Satiety, they're full longer, and that's more of a gastroparesis feature because the food's just sitting there. It's not getting pushed through. The stomach's paralyzed. That's my s simplified. And then satiation, they're full earlier in the eating process, but they don't necessarily stay full longer than usual, but they just- they just get full really quickly. Yep, absolutely. And that's more of a functional dyspepsia symptom. Symptom because we can't measure accommodation very well yet. Mm -hmm. um, okay. Uh, like, like we There's can- not some sort of swallowable balloon test? This seems improbable to me. I'm using it as like inflating in body parts. <laughs> we... Like this feels like it should be- So, so that's how we used to do it. Um, we used to have patients Aha. swallow a balloon and then we would- uh, kind of uh, fill up this balloon and it was a, a barostat and you could actually measure the volume of the balloon. Now, um, I, I, I can go on a very big tangent here, but I, I won't, but now we do it. We don't have time. Yeah. Now <laughs> we do it with a nuclear medicine test and we can actually see the size of the stomach change. And, and I'm hopefully going to make some improvement in that even with some clinical trials, fingers crossed, coming down the line. But Back to, cool. to postprandial um, distress syndrome. Uh, the other side of functional dyspepsia is epigastric pain syndrome, which is bothersome, either epigastric pain or burning that's severe enough to impact your usual activities that doesn't usually get induced by a meal. And these two overlap, right? Um, but, but the reason why it's important to distinguish whether food is related or not is because we go down different treatment algorithms uh, when we can make that distinction. Yeah, and of course we're gonna have we'll have a figure that uh, after for the audience by the time they're hearing this we'll have a figure that lays these out and and there's some great algorithms that have been out there in the in the guidelines and in the um, there was a Lancet paper I saw that had a nice nice figure as well so we can link we'll have we'll have sources for you for that well so what what would be the diagnostic workup so H pylori I think is part of it right so we've already done one of the steps we and and what what will we do next if that H pylori test is negative and do we have enough information here about Miss Floyd our our 32 year old with epigastric pain to to say if they're more of the epigastric or the postprandial flavor which one which one would you think from this we said the symptoms are worse frequently worsened by eating um, yeah. can't really pick any specific foods, uh, the pains in the epigastrum and, uh, that those were the main symptoms. They've tried some bicarbonate or calcium carbonate and bis bismuth. Yeah, I would. Uh, so everybody gets H. pylori testing. Absolutely true. And the caveat there being how you do that H. pylori testing, as long as they're young and they have no alarm symptoms, we do, we recommend non-invasive HP testing, right? So stool antigen is just fine. If there are any alarm features or they're over the age of 65, we do that H. pylori testing with an upper endoscopy. So that's sort of mm -hmm. that difference. I think- um, And that's because they're more likely to have malignancy or something serious if they're older, correct. right? Correct, and, and more likely, okay. for, uh, more important for us to assess for that. 
So this 32-year-old woman with no significant past medical history, I would label as postprandial distress syndrome because most of her symptoms are going to be worsened by eating, it looks like. It doesn't matter that the exacerbating food is not consistent. And this is a, an analogy I like to use for a lot of my patients. Um, and, and I tell them that it's, the, it's not the food that's the problem. It's the vessel, right? It's the stomach. It's the lining. And this is really important because a lot of these disorders of the gut-brain axis, patients attribute to food because often they're related to when they eat. And patients get so frustrated by not being able to identify which food is doing it. Even worse, when they can identify specific foods and start eliminating them. And we run this risk of patients doing their own elimination diets and ending up on super restrictive diets with a fear of reintroduction and eating. Um, we can get into that a little bit later if we want to, but um, suffice it to, to say that we have to reiterate that it's a function of how the stomach and intestines are working. It's not the food. Um, that's the problem here. Mm -hmm. I think that um, a, another thought, you know, in these functional dyspepsia patients too, is if there is a component of gastroparesis, of nausea, of vomiting with these, right? It doesn't imply in our case, but a gastric emptying study can be can be considered, you know, if they're not quite fitting mm -hmm. in a, oh, it's, it's pain bloating after a small amount of food. Um, but instead, they're also having vomiting. They're also having kind of regurgitation or bringing up undigested food. Something like that is when I would trigger a gastric emptying study. Iris, we we so we've talked about with our patient here. We think maybe it's more of a postprandial flavor. We've done our H. pylori testing. They're younger than sixty, so they don't need to proceed right to endoscopy. What would be next step? Are you going to are you going to do a therapeutic trial here, or would you do more diagnostics? What would be the next step, and how would you talk to the patient about that? For this patient, I would go down a treatment algorithm for functional dyspepsia without any more testing. Um, I would reassure her that this is. I'm fairly confident that this is the disorder you know that she has. That the H. pylori testing was really the only thing that's indicated from our large uh, trials. And I would start with a PPI trial. Um, always a reasonable place to start. Four weeks or so is generally what I give it in terms of time and standard dose. So once daily PPI for most of them. H2 blockers can be considered as well. And actually H2 blockers have been shown to decrease hypersensitivity in the bowels. And so um, for the upper GI tract, they are actually a pretty reasonable option as well. And they can have that extra benefit over a PPI when we're talking about things like um, uh, functional heartburn, right? So- Yeah. Can I ask how you counsel to give those? So I, I know PPI or H2s are often used as sort of on-demand therapies in terms of for patients with these symptoms, do they take them routinely or how does that, what does that empiric treatment I would actually with? have them take it nightly if I'm trying to use it as empiric treatment um, for a, a hypersensitivity condition. Yep. Great. Thanks. So short of the PPI, there are other kind of uh, pharmacologic and non-pharmacologic treatment options that I use depending on the severity of symptoms and patient preference in addition to any other comorbidities and medications that they're already on, right? And, and this is where that really taking a good history, I try to focus on what is the most bothersome problem for the patient in this situation, and I try to target my therapy to that issue. Um, so starting with the non-pharmacologics, Peppermint oil and caraway oil have 
both uh, this formulation called FD Guard has been shown in trials to be pretty good. Um, but even the peppermint oil itself has had some good data for improvement of functional dyspepsia. And it does that by a mechanism of decreasing that hypersensitivity and as an antispasmodic. The caveat here is while you can get peppermint in many formulations, right? One thing I, I the, the biggest thing I tell my patient is please don't drink essential oil. Right, because they could potentially find it, and it's it's peppermint extract, right? But it's formulated for your diffuser, so that that is poisonous, and they should not do that. But the other, uh, from for older patients who may not want to take a medication, I actually have them try peppermint tea, and sometimes that peppermint tea might be enough if their symptoms are relatively mild. Now. Peppermint by itself can actually cause relaxation of your GE junction. And so it will actually worsen reflux potentially, which is why all the formulated peppermint supplements on the market are enteric coated so that they don't release until they hit the stomach and, and are a little bit further along. Um, so your kind of formulaic options are enteric coated peppermint, uh, FD guard, and also IB guard, um, both of which are available over the counter. Is, and those are the pe those are peppermint ones. The caraway oil is that is is there any specific name that that might go by? People might see FD it. FD guard as? and IB guard are both formulated with both. And yeah. Oh, they have yeah. Peppermint FD guard and at least has, has oh, both. I, uh, I'm I think IB guard has as well. Now, caraway oil you can actually in for the right patient, right? You can actually just have them take the seeds and brew it into a tea and drink it that way. And so that's an option, too, for patients who really want to try it, but don't necessarily want to um, pay for it or don't have access to it. <laughs> that sounds you. awful. Like, I mean, you must be in dire straits if you're drinking steeped caraway seeds. That just sounds Well, so, Paul, that's a really great point, right? Because these patients are in dire straits, right? That's the, This is the whole point is that many of them are coming to us with, I've tried this and that and, and, and the other thing. And you know, give me something. And I, you know, this is where our empathy really comes into play, right? Because they are willing to try these things. Um, this is really, you know, usually really impacting their lives with no benefit from uh, any of the other things they've tried. There, would you also tell someone with a postprandial distress or epigastric pain syndrome, any, any just blanket uh, lifestyle things that you would tell these people to do? Because we've talked about some medical foods, I guess, and we've talked about PPIs and H2, but H2 blockers, what else might you do? Um, so so there's more pharmacologic stuff, and then there's sort of dietary changes, right? So let me talk about the dietary changes since you asked. The, we think, right, if you're thinking about satiation as a mechanism— that it's that their stomachs aren't stretching potentially or that the stretching itself is what's causing their symptoms. And so having them eat smaller meals so that they're not pushing their stomach to the limit that it has to go and avoiding kind of things that would potentially slow down their stomach. So things that are really high in fat, for example, or high in fiber um, may kind of irritate things in the stomach. Um, other things I would absolutely tell them to avoid would be NSAIDs, right? Every AGI doctor will tell you to avoid NSAIDs. Uh, coffee, alcohol, smoking. Um, but evidence for that is pretty weak. Um, but you, you can't really go wrong telling someone to avoid smoking and alcohol. Uh. 
Yeah, but coffee, Iris, you're really watch <laughs> yeah, out. This is the oh. wrong audience. <laughs> I, you know, weak evidence, weak evidence. So going kind of um, the other end of that spectrum, right? What other pharmacologic medications would I actually write a prescription for? This is where it matters whether they have postprandial distress syndrome or if they have epigastric pain syndrome. For the, the mm. PDS folks, buspirone is actually the medication that is recommended. So what buspirone does is it's, it's, it's marketed as an anxiolytic, but it has a lovely kind of smooth muscle relaxation effect. And so it can actually help that stomach stretch. And this is sort of my disclaimer, right? Every time I write one of these medications for a patient, I will tell them, when you read the label for this, you will see that it is written for anti-anxiety. I am not treating you for anxiety. I am not telling you that this is related to your anxiety because by the time they come to me, they have heard that somewhere before. Um, and I'm very clear with them that I do not think this is in your head, that buspirone has clinical trial data for the treatment of functional dyspepsia. And if they look like they don't believe me, I pull out the paper for them. I have like all these papers on file. Because, <laughs> you know, some people, some patients just don't, right? They think that I'm just trying to sell them an anxiolytic because I still don't believe their gastric symptoms. And so I will pull out a paper um, for functional. You should put QR <laughs> codes on the wall with all your common papers and just have them take a picture if you want to I have them in an EndNote library. That's about as hip as I can get. Um, okay. <laughs> Because <laughs> <laughs> there's really nothing hipper than an EndNote library. For I sure. plugged a PS5 game right. at the beginning of the show. How hip can I get? That's true. Yeah. So for buspirone, I have my patients generally start at five milligrams at night. I'll up titrate them up to 15 milligrams TID before meals. So it's about 30 minutes before they eat. However, I want to make sure that they're not having kind of a, a sedation effects from that medication because because it is a little bit of an anxiolytic. For the ones who know, who understand that anxiety does play a role, right? It doesn't cause these conditions, but it can certainly worsen a lot of that hypersensitivity. Those are the ones I tell, hey, this is going to be good for your anxiety as well. Um, but in the patients who yeah. are not like kind of ready to make that connection, I separate it very clearly because that is why I'm using it. It's not because of the anxiety. For the epigastric pain syndrome, mm -hmm. There, we think that the kind of main pathologic abnormality instead of maybe an accommodation or gastric function issue is that visceral hypersensitivity, that they are too aware of what is happening in their stomach lining. And that's how I explain it to patients. It's that you didn't used to feel this. You don't have to feel this, but you are. And I, one of the, um, one of my colleagues on online had actually given this really great analogy of your body was sending an alarm that there's a fire. And I can tell you now from looking at your labs, looking at the testing, be it H. pylori or endoscopy, that there is no fire. Now we have to help your body turn off the alarm. And that's what the TCA is doing. It's turning off the alarm. And so TCAs have very pro good proven efficacy for pain control in all of the disorders of the gut-brain axis. And SSRIs, we use them, but the data is not as robust as it is for the TCAs. Let me try and recap if there's any, if there's no other agents for this, just the, we, we started off with a PPI trial, four weeks or so, you can, or you can also give an H2, and that was a once daily PPI, or you could do an H2 blocker nightly. 
And then we could also recommend maybe try peppermint oil or tea or caraway oil or tea. Paul's really, he really wants to try this caraway tea. Uh, dietary changes were smaller meals. Avoid high fat, high fiber because that slows stomach emptying. And of course, NSAIDs, smoking, they're bad for the stomach. If they have, uh, if, if that's not working, we might think about buspirone as a muscle relaxant for people who have the postprandial distress. And for patients with epigastric pain, since it's more visceral hypersensitivity, we might use TCAs, which have better evidence than, you said, SSRIs. Yeah. yeah. There are okay. some new drugs that are being developed. Um, one of them that I do want to mention is called Vanoprazan. It's a potassium competitive acid blocker um, in yeah. trials in Japan. We talked yeah, about that with, on the H. pylori because it, it, it's in the yep. H. pylori. Yep. And so yep. hopefully that will give us a new option when because uh, some people don't metabolize the PPIs very well. Um, some other medications coming out in Japan called act ac acotiamide, um, and it basically is altering your gastric function. But they don't know how it's working in humans. It just works. We've got some trials as well um, that are, again, like— you know, fingers crossed, we're going to be able to start a clinical trial here too for some other competitive receptors. But basically, they're all targeting either gastric function or hypersensitivity. Matt, as you're going through the the pathway, I'm reminded of our uh, Peabody award-winning cough episode with Brad Hayward. This feels a lot like the same thing where I think probably it's helpful to counsel patients up front, listen, this might take some time for us to actually get you feeling better addressing your issue. I believe that you're having symptoms. You know, we'll, we'll go through things and, I, and, I, and we'll work through this together, but this might take some effort. I imagine there has to be some upfront counseling because it sounds like there's a little bit in terms of trial and error as to what approaches you're using and um, what's going to be effective for specific patients. Absolutely. Paul, if you'll remember the the Thelma and Louise gif that I put into <laughs> a, a PowerPoint, uh, Iris, have you ever seen this? It's Thelma and Louise. They're they're sitting in a convertible, and it just shows them like clasp hands and drive off a cliff together. And I I was like, yeah, this you know treating chronic cough is kind of like a Thelma and Louise thing where you're just like to the patient, I'm in I'm in this with you till the end. Let's go, and it might be a wild ride. Because you're you're doing you might try so many different steps and treatments and eventually there's invasive procedures and this sounds like a similar thing. Do a lot of these patients end up getting EGD um, with the chronic cough? They, bronchoscopy was yeah. one of the final final pathways of it, like the terminal pathway. I think a lot of them do end up getting EGD when they're not responding to some of these kind of lower therapies. Mm -hmm. But I would say that the way to sort of the, the society guideline and overall guidance on these disorders is to use that positive diagnosis, right? I have seen this before. I have, for better or for worse, I've seen other patients who are going through what you are going through. This is called functional dyspepsia. If you don't believe me, I will pull up the Rome 4 diagnostic criteria and go over it with you. And this is how we treat it. For certain patients, I will go through you know, we think this is what's going on. We think it's a hypersensitivity. And so this is why I'm using these medications. This is the rationale behind why I chose this for you. This is what you should look for. I think that a lot of this, it, it, it's the other reason for anxiety, right? Because it takes time. It takes you having to sit down and look a patient in the eye and make this treatment plan with them. And often we don't have that time. Um, but I think it's important that you don't necessarily feel that anxiety or show it because the more rushed you are, the more you drive up your patient's anxiety. The more they feel like you are on their team, the more willing they are to give these 
medications a try and not seek that second opinion and not force that upper endoscopy when it's not needed, right? So the other thing too is this positive, this idea of positive diagnosis, right? You want to introduce these disorders early. So when you have this pattern in a patient where you read this, uh, the patient history and you're suspecting a disorder of gut-brain axis, I tell them, I will send you for X, Y, and Z testing. H. pylori, you know, routine labs, if they're over 50, I'll send you for the upper endoscopy. However, if this comes back positive, you fit the category of these disorders, and I'm fairly certain this is what you will have. So that it's not a, oh, hey, the testing came back negative, so it's probably this, right? I bring it to them upfront before I do the testing that this is a likely diagnosis for you, and there's nothing wrong with that diagnosis. But if this is the path, and everything else comes back negative, I have a diagnosis for you and I have a treatment plan that we will go down. Do not be disappointed if the EGD is negative. Yeah. What strikes me about this is there's very little testing. It's H. pylori, some therapeutic trials, and uh, they may have an endoscopy at some point, but it's, it's it's not a huge amount of testing here. Yeah. Plus or minus like a gastric emptying in a patient who's very, very persistent or has that right profile where they could potentially have it. Yeah. Right. Paul, do you want to tell us how how do you think things ended for Miss Floyd? Do you want to wrap it up for us? What do we do for her postprandial distress? Yeah, no, I'd, I'm happy to report. I mean, she, she we stopped at the, at the caraway tea, shockingly. Like she had some tea that tasted like toast and her symptoms relieved magically overnight. So we cracked the case <laughs> wide open. She's doing great now. So strong work with Miss Floyd. <laughs> All right, we're going to move on um, to Ms. Cruz now. This is a, a much shorter case, um, I guess maybe because we have a presumptive diagnosis. But Ms. Cruz is a 40-year-old female. She's coming to us with a past medical history significant for gastroenteritis about six months ago, who is now presenting with recurrent loose bowel movements and abdominal pain. So right out the gate, sort of just given that very brief and abbreviated history, um, Iris, does that trigger any thoughts or any presumptive diagnoses that we should start chasing down? Well, I mean, given the the theme of the episode, I'm going to go with IBS um, and I'm going to go with (laughs) post-infectious IBS. So let's talk a little bit about IBS. And I know you guys covered this on a prior episode fairly extensively. So we'll kind of um, go through that. It was so long ago, (laughs) it needs an update. Rome 4 criteria for irritable bowel syndrome. Uh, It's recurrent abdominal pain on average at least one day a week in the last three months associated with two or more of either relation to defecation, so associated with a change in frequency of stool or associated with a change in form or appearance of stool. And of course, with all Rome, right, criteria filled for the last three months, symptom onset at least six months prior to diagnosis. This is actually getting called into question a little bit in the irritable bowel syndrome diagnosis because uh, the last, this like time lag makes it necessary that patients have to wait this long before they receive an IBS diagnosis. And often we already know it's IBS. And so it's a little bit of a... um, uh, a minutia, if you will, right? But the societies are moving towards saying you don't need to be, you don't need to wait three months necessarily to make an IBS diagnosis in the right patient. That way, drugs can be covered, patients can go, undergo less testing, and they can get treatment a little bit faster. So just something to be aware of. We have done episodes recently with you talking about diarrhea, talking about constipation, and Elena made these great figures that, that walk us through a lot of what kind of workup you might do for someone with chronic constipation or chronic diarrhea. 
is there do you when you when you're thinking about this diagnosis here what what is like the minimal testing that that someone needs needs to have done that you would recommend and and of course we can post these figures that I'm referring to in the show notes Absolutely and the societies have been really good about putting out guidelines for this testing, right? So that we can follow an algorithmic approach and that we can really minimize unnecessary testing. So again, positive test strategy, Mrs. Cruz, I'm going to send you for these tests because these are common conditions that may mimic what you have. However, what you have really sounds to me like it's post-infectious IBS. And if the testing comes back negative, which it's very possible it will, we'll go down that algorithm and we will still get you the treatment that you need. So IBS, diarrhea subtype, the testing that is recommended is to rule out celiac disease with serologies, so non-invasive testing, fecal calprotectin to rule out inflammatory bowel disease. And if that's not available, consider a CRP. But the fecal testing is actually pretty good to identify IBD versus IBS. And so if available, either a calprotectin or a fecal lactoferrin uh, is what is recommended. The pathogen testing is not recommended, but in the cases of these like post-infectious or in patients with high risk, I will test them for either C. diff or Giardia or both. And for Giardia, the risk is kind of uh, frequent hiking where they're drinking um, stream water. If their water source, if their primary water source is well water, I will test them for Giardia as well. Or if they have kind of other um, risk for outbreak, like a family member had it or something like that. Other things to think about when sort of at the primary care level, I think that is really, really appropriate testing and it's okay to stop there. At the GI level, if kind of a lot of our empiric stuff is not working, we'll think about doing a flexible sigmoidoscopy and taking random colon biopsies for microscopic colitis. It always sounds terrible when I call them random biopsies. I'm like aware of this term, but it just means that you're not targeting <laughs> anything that looks abnormal, right? And that there's no kind of quadrants or anything like that. And then we do bile acid testing for bile acid malabsorption. And that's generally a 48-hour stool collection. Um, High-risk patients for this include those who have abnormal kind of bile uh, bile acid circulation. Anyone who's had ileal disease um, for any reason, right? Like if they had Crohn's disease and they had their ileum taken out or like an extensive appendectomy, anyone who has had their gallbladder out and that diarrhea never got better, they're at risk for bile acid malabsorption. Um, But a large percentage of our IBD patients have this as well. And it's important to know because they respond to different treatments, right? You told us it was less than 100 centimeters of bowel. Yep. They like overproduce bile acids, so they might actually just be producing so much that they can't reabsorb them all. Absolutely. Um, and if they have lost their terminal ileum, then they can't recycle and recapture those bile acids as effectively. The other thing that always comes up is SIBO, right? This small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. And many people have many thoughts about it. And some people get like very into it. So I will not say too much about it, except that there are certain patients with certain risk factors where nobody will argue that they are at risk for bacterial overgrowth, okay? So these are patients who have any sort of reason for bacterial stasis. So some sort of diverticulum sitting in their small bowel, a Bruin-Y gastric bypass, some sort of ileal blind loop, um, and then the patients who have dysmotility of the small bowel. But, the, but in those patients, you're not necessarily thinking IBS as your first diagnosis anymore. For IBS-C, mm. testing becomes a lot more easier. We do, uh, you know, the, the like GI digital rectal exam, right? Uh, or 
an anal rectal manometry or both. And then if they are above the age of 45 and have not had colorectal cancer screening, right? No new age, 45. That's when we do the colonoscopy, but that's for colorectal cancer screening. That's not for the uh, constipation workup. So basically we're just trying to catch them, right? Like, well, we'll screen you. Yeah. But important to note that that's why, right? Because insurance will cover one of those and potentially put the patient in, you know, uh, responsible for a cost if you're doing this for a diagnostic purpose. So know that we're not doing it for diagnosis. It's for screening. Yeah. So last time when we talked to you about constipation, you we we talked about we 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 looked for secondary causes, you know, medications and things like that, any red flags. And then we did a trial of laxatives. If that didn't work, they're getting the manometry and the advanced uh, rectal exam and uh, the yeah the, the manometry, the balloon expulsion, and if they. If we don't find anything with the um, pelvic floor dysfunction testing, which is the the manometry and, and such, then we might do these transit tests for slow transit constipation. And if there's no slow transit, then they eventually, then they're like, okay, this is probably IBS C. But I imagine most patients don't even get that far or need to get that far. The transit testing doesn't happen very often. Um, often, uh, you know, I, and I think there was actually a, a listener question, right? I think. Um, Somebody had posted this on Twitter. I think it was Katie Dunleavy. Um, and she, it, the question was like, when do we do the slow transit constipation testing? Because the testing is so onerous and it doesn't necessarily yeah. change your management. I actually will treat my patients when they sound like IBSC, right? When they have that pain component, I will treat them down the IBSC algorithm. And when I think about transit testing is really when those laxatives aren't working as well as I think they should and they're not getting a response, and there's no pelvic floor dysfunction, and kind of somewhere the rest of their history is more consistent with some sort of neuromuscular disorder as opposed to a central sensitization flavor. And it's unfair for me to say, right, because I see these patients day in and day out, so I'm developing these kind of protocols and algorithms and like patient imprints. Um, But if my patient has fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue, migraine, and these other central sensitization conditions that are known to be traveling with IBS, I'm not going to put them through tr- slow transit constipation testing. And how you mentioned sort of all this in terms of framing it as being as a positive diagnosis, and we expect the testing to come back relatively reassuring. So it, similar to the dyspepsia question, how are you explaining what's going on to patients? What, you know, when you're talking to patients about, you know, obviously they're worried about the worst. Mm-hmm. And I think always, you know, cancer is a huge concern, especially I imagine with the constipation. But how are you how are you framing the discussion about the, the background pathophysiology? Depending on a, a little bit on kind of what is their predominant symptom, right? So let's talk about if the predominant problem is pain, is this visceral hypersensitivity that they are just feeling their colons move. And often that is what they're feeling in irritable bowel syndrome because it's their colons like pushing that bowel movement along or trying to push the bowel movement along unsuccessfully. So I talk to them, um, depending on patient level, right? I will I will kind of pick and choose my spiel, but I'll tell them that the CNS, upper brain, and the enteric nervous system develop together embryologically. They used to be one nervous system and then they separated. So this is really important because they still respond to the same exact neuromodulators. And so this is why we use them, right? It's not to treat anxiety. It's not to treat depression. It's to treat the gut nervous system itself because it responds to the same stuff. I tell them about how um, kind of that visceral hypersensitivity can develop from a number of reasons. 
One of them being kind of po- that, that post-infectious IBS is a really good example for how to start is when they have an infection, a lot of things in their bodies become abnormal. So one is the microbiome. The good bacteria kind of get wiped out along with the bad bacteria, or there's this dysbiosis where the bad bacteria grow back and the good ones don't. Um, that can cause an increase in sensitization of their bowels. So that basically they had this, you know, fire. We'll go back to the fire example. Um, when they were infected, but the infection has gone. The fire has been cleared. Now you just have to turn off the fire alarm. Um, and the fire alarm is basically stuck on. on. So when I talk to patients about this, I try to gauge kind of where they are and I meet them there, right? So um, I'll just give you a couple of examples of the analogies that I'll use to, to explain this to a patient. So sometimes I'll start with how the nervous systems are related. So I'll tell them that the enteric nervous system and the central nervous system were one nervous system embryologically. And then as we developed, they kind of migrated apart, but that's why they respond to the same neurotransmitters. And that's why the neuromodulators that we use to treat anxiety and depression also work in the gut. And here's where I'll reiterate that I am using this to treat gut disorder and not to treat anything in the brain. Um, the other thing that sometimes I'll use is that role of the parasympathetic nervous system, which I think we talked about in the constipation episode where heightened kind of uh, sympathetic nervous system activation can drive gut function to slow or stop. But really when it comes to disorders of the gut-brain interaction, we're talking a lot of hypersensitivity so that the gut is again, feeling things that it's really not meant to be feeling. And how do we get that to calm down? So we talked about that fire alarm, right? The fire alarm was set off either by something like an infection or a cold or a course of antibiotics. Um, even though there was necessarily e- either the fire's already gone or there was no fire to begin with. And we just have to turn that alarm off. Sometimes I'll talk to them about, well, you know, yes, we don't see a cancer, but you feel like there's something bothering you. Well, folks who have phantom limb syndrome, you know, they don't have an arm, but they can still feel arm pain. That's how our central nervous system is wired. Sometimes I'll I'll give them, often I'll give them an example, especially in chronic constipation, where I know that they have stool kind of sitting in their bowels, irritating the lining. I'll tell them that, you know, if I take my intact skin and I rub it over and over and over and over and over again, well, eventually it's going to turn red. And then if I keep doing that, it's going to get rubbed raw. And there was nothing wrong with it, but now the sensation has changed and it's hypersensitive. If there was an insult, like an infection, I'll tell them, well, it's like we cut your arm open and then didn't quite allow it to heal and it's just still being irritated. Um, when we kind of talk about more of a central sensitization, when the when the IBS comes along and it frequently comes along with things like fibromyalgia and chronic fatigue, then I give them more of a talk about central sensitization and what does that mean? Well, that means that the pain receptors that were carrying bowel function or um, kind of pain from the back or even from fatigue. Now, instead of uh, kind of these thin pain fibers have been activated so many times that your body thinks that this pain signal is really, really important. So now it's become a myelinated superhighway. And we have evidence that this happens, right? That the MRI findings of chronic pain patients light up differently than patients who don't have chronic pain. And so I try to kind of take that science and what I know about the pathophysiologies of these conditions and make it relevant to a patient's experience depending on how they're experiencing it. Does that help or is that like too scattered? 
I don't think <laughs> no, it's that scattered. That's great. I think it's I, I, it is it's a hard condition to explain, and it's it's nice to have some sort of answer as far as the actual pathophysiology of this. Uh, especially better than, as we've already said multiple times on this, don't just tell the patient, this is your anxiety. Uh, here's an anxiety medicine, <laughs> which is, I think, I think happens right. way too often. Often it's, it's not necessarily that, right? It's, oh, the testing came back negative. There's nothing wrong with you, but the algorithm says to try this depress this medicine. And then patients see that it's an antidepressant and they get that wrong message because it wasn't conveyed, you know, or explained why they were getting mm. this medicine. And so they don't take it. So it, often it's well-meaning. And, and I think we should move on to talking a little bit about the treatment um, and whether it's IBS-C, IBS-D, or mixed type. What's your spiel about treatment? And uh, we can go through the pharmacologic and non-pharmacologic. And we do have some listener questions about um, some of the non-pharmacologic stuff as well. Maybe I'll go over it, um, kind of the guideline-based stuff pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. um, and, and also you guys talked about this in a prior episode. So FODMAP diet is a big question, always a very limited trial with a nutritionist if possible, but only six weeks and they have to start reintroducing. Otherwise they're risking micronutrient deficiencies, but they're also risking persistent food intolerance. And that's something that I, I think we could talk about more, but doesn't get talked about enough. If there's significant cramping pain, I will reach for an antispasmodic, but the guidelines do not recommend for an antispasmodic for global IBS symptoms. Um, it, there's just not enough data to support their use overall. Aggressive constipation management. The guidelines recommend lubiprostone, linaclotide, placanotide, tagacerod, and we can give the doses and sort of what these are in the show notes, I'm sure. Um, Peppermint supplementation has some good evidence for IBS as well. So that's that same medication we were just talking about for functional dyspepsia. Um, prescription laxatives are recommended for your constipation like we talked about, and rifaximin is recommended for IBSD. However, um, I'm sure there are ID doctors who would like skewer me if I'm like recommending this, right? <laughs> it is still an antibiotic and I actually do try not to use it if possible. One, because it's almost, it's so difficult to get covered for most yeah. patients. And I'm already talking to a patient about dysbiosis, right? Like I think that their microbiome was disrupted and now I'm going to give them, unless I really truly think that they have SIBO and they need kind of that treatment to limit their flora, I try not to use that antibiotic, um, but it is recommended in the guidelines. So expert kind of deviation, if you will. Otherwise, for IBS-D, uh, Alocitron is a new kind of recommended medication. It's a serotonin antagonist um, for IBS-D in women. And then um, eluzatiline is still available, but know that you shouldn't use that medication if a patient doesn't have a gallbladder. So it is contraindicated in that situation. The TCAs, you know, have pretty good uh, efficacy for global IBS symptoms. But I will mention that because we talked about central sensitization coming as a package for a lot of these patients, they often come with the comorbidities of anxiety and depression. So they're already on something um, for either anxiety or depression. In those cases, I will always leave it to their treating psychiatrist or their primary care physician who's managing that other medication. I will not add on a TCA. And Iris, start... Before, since, we, mm -hmm. since TCAs have come up now twice, can I just ask, do yeah. you have, in the absence of a reason to not prescribe one, do you have a preferred, do you prefer amitriptyline or nortriptyline, or what does that look like, practically speaking, for you? 
I like to reach for nortriptyline. I also like the sip the cipramine, um, mostly because amitriptyline can be a little bit constipating for patients. And so I don't want to send, especially if I'm trying to treat constipation, I'm not using a constipating medication. Um, but nortriptyline and, and cipramine seem to have better profiles for that. And and audience, I know we have some geriatricians listening, one of whom uh, I have office hours with. So we, uh, antispasmodics and the TCAs, be careful. If you got a 75-year-old, uh, please, you know, uh, that's all I'll say. But Iris, do you have favorites out of these? Like uh, you, you gave us a ton of options here: antispasmatics, aggressive constipation, peppermint. You said elocitron, maybe elozadoline. Yeah, well, how do you say that one? Okay, don't don't make me say it. Elozadoline, uh, and and then the TCAs. <laughs> what what is like in primary care? What do you think we should be reaching for? Probably I'm not gonna be able to get my hands on some of the newer, fancier ones. What do you think we'd have most success with, and we should be comfortable reaching for? Um, just kind of on the topic of geriatrics medicine, right? The other thing about these medications and TCAs and, and this whole like central sensitization issue, it's not just overlapping um, kind of mood disorders. It's also chemical sensitivities. Often I hear from patients that they do not tolerate the TCAs or SSRIs because they end up with side effects. Um, and so that's also another caveat that while they are good, they're often difficult to tolerate for patients. What are my favorites? I I will use the secretagogues. You know, I, I know we kind of talked about my constipation plan. So that is always where I start. I try to aggressively manage their constipation. In trials, that hasn't necessarily shown improvement in the pain component. Um, but I think improving the bowel movement kind of is the key to reversing some of this hypersensitivity, right? If I think that that's where it started. So I, I will aggressively manage constipation if it's there. For diarrhea, um, and, and so from a primary care standpoint, it's very reasonable. And I've seen a lot of primary cares write um, for some of these secretagogues, either lubiprostone or even linaclotide seems to be a pretty popular choice. And unfortunately, often it's dictated by insurance. Yeah. It's like which which one insurance will cover before I'm allowed to try the next one. And, and we could rage about this for a very long time. <laughs> Um, I, so I will use that. Um, I think we, we had, rec uh, we had talked about probiotics a little bit too, and we could talk about it more because I think there was a question about it. There was a question from Twitter and I believe it was yeah. John Damianos and he asked about, yeah. about probiotics. And then another, another listener on Instagram was asking about the microbiome and its, its relation to this. So I think these two questions, do you talk about that with your patients and do we have anything there that you're recommending? I talk about it a lot. So I talk about how the microbiome plays a role in both um, microscopic inflammation, which we know exists at the tissue level of IBS, right? That we have good data showing mast cell activation, increased neurons, et cetera, et cetera. So we know there's some sort of like sensitization happening at the nerves. And we know that with certain um, microbiome compositions, that that's more likely or less likely. So there's pro-inflammatory gut bacteria and then anti-inflammatory gut bacteria. And we know that it's better when the ratio is better for the um, anti-inflammatory folks. What we don't know is how to make that happen. And so that's sort of where I leave it with patients. I'll tell them that we have evidence that this matters, which is why I'm not going to give you a fifth course of antibiotics because I want to preserve what you have, which is also why if you limit food for a really long time, the bacteria that help you digest certain products are going to 
kind of not be fed, right? Like it, just to simplify that. And so you'll be less likely to tolerate that mm-hmm. in the future, um, which helps patients kind of pr- stop doing this. Like I will avoid all things that make me feel bad, right? Especially when everything makes them feel bad. Getting a little off topic. So I, I help them to understand that the microbiome does play a really important role. And then I tell them, unfortunately, I have really no good way of fixing that right now. There's been some talk about stool transplant to fix it, but that is not recommended at this time. One, because it's it's relatively invasive. Um, and two, there is a risk that you'll get some sort of infection from that stool, even though that risk is incredibly small. When you're using it to treat something like IBS, where the risk of mortality from the disease itself is low, you can't take that risk, right? So then we're left with probiotics. Um, there's a couple of probiotics out there that do have some reasonable data, VSL number three being one of the few that have clinical trial tests. But the problem with a lot of these disorders and with probiotics is how heterogeneous everything is. And so your meta-analysis data is unable to be pooled because you're essentially using different drugs, but calling it all the same, right? You can't kind of, the, the probiotic formulations being used are so different that they don't pool very well. So you don't really know what's working and what's not. And then you don't, like, there's no FDA approval for most of these. And so you don't know what's actually in them. And so I'll tell patients, you know, uh, just just like the prior uh, speaker you had, I will say, if the probiotics are helping you, fine. Um, all it's hurting is your pocketbook. If you want to give it a try even, fine. I would recommend, you know, you, you can give VSL number three a try, or I'll tell them that there are specific strains that have some good data and to look for those if they're going to buy a supplement. I'll talk to them about natural found, uh, forming probiotics. So like fermented foods, for example, yogurt with live active cultures has some data that it helps. Um, and then things like kombucha, like kefir, data is very limited. Um, and, but as long as it doesn't hurt, it's not unreasonable. And, you know, sourdough is my favorite. Paul, you can keep drinking your kombucha. Oh, thank God. <laughs> well, we so with our patient here, let, let's go back to our patient. We've given a just a huge amount of options for IBS here. And, Paul, that always makes me think that this is, as we said at the beginning, this is one of these just like another Thelma and Louise type thing where you're just going to try a lot of things. I, fi- I do find that patients often... You just give them a lot of options, you empower them, and they will, They will, if they're motivated and you work with them, see them frequently, they'll, they'll sort of figure things out that, that help get themselves better. You know, I, I, I don't know that I can take credit for the IBS patients that seem to be doing well. Um, I'm not sure if you have that experience, Paul. Your IBS patients. I, it, it can go either way. I, I, I'd be much more interested in Iris's experience, but I feel like if you give too many options all at the same time, they're like, "You're the doctor. You tell me what to do." So, like, I, I think <laughs> yeah. you have to sort of give some <laughs> at least some initial um, framework for 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 them to select. And I think that's probably the most helpful way to empower them without overwhelming them because there's there's a lot of choices here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let me throw a couple more in the mix. So we just talked about some of our patients have chemical sensitivities, right? And they don't want medications. Like they don't, they don't like taking medications. They'd rather go a natural path. Let's talk a little bit about CBT because among all of the options, guideline recommended, CBT has excellent data, right? A number needed to treat a four. So gut-directed psychotherapy, um, and this is very different than CBT or cognitive behavior therapy for something like anxiety, something like depression. These are specific um, psychotherapists who are trained specially in gastrointestinal 
psychotherapy. And so they'll apply symptom-specific management and treatment options. It's a short-term kind of eight to 12-week uh, treatment period. Number needed to treat is four, similar in efficacy to a TCA with no side effect. However, right, the, the no side effect, the caveat is access, the caveat is patient time and provider availability, as well as insurance coverage. The other treatment, which is, you know, of course, near and dear to my heart in this category is gut-directed hypnotherapy. Yes. Um, and that's got the same number needed to treat, NNT of four, uh, with very minimal side effects. Um, so those uh, options are, so with the hypnotherapy protocols, we do a seven session protocol tw uh, over the course of 12 weeks. And they, are, they take about 20 to 30 minutes each. I'll usually see a patient for about 40 minutes because we, we kind of talk about how they've been, we debrief after, um, and it, it's, it's an option. Now, because availability is limited, right? Both of those options are now becoming increasingly digitized. And so there are more and more apps coming on the market to improve access to CBT and hypnotherapy for gut-specific disorders. And so that's going to be really exciting, I think, for patients yeah. and providers alike. And for functional dyspepsia, the, the NNT that you're giving, was that for functional dyspepsia, cyclic vomiting, and IBS or just IBS? It's for IBS. Okay. Um, that, that was kind of where that study was done. Got it. But what's what it's really targeting is the hypersens is the visceral sensitivity, right? And yeah. so that's a common thread in all of these conditions. Mm -hmm. um, functional dyspepsia specific hypnotherapy protocols are actually in development, and uh, one of the hypnotherapy folks is, has developed a digitized version of that as well. And so hopefully we're going to be able to run that through a clinical trial soon and be able to provide that for folks to listen to on their own time which would be really, really um, helpful, I think. Very cool. I think we've ran through a lot of options here and we, we definitely wanna get onto cyclic vomiting because the audience was excited to hear about that. And I know Paul and I too are too, because don't know much about that. Um, I, I think the only, one of the things I think we didn't mention yet, did, did I miss, did, what, do you have a favorite anti-diarrheal for patients with IBSD that you recommend? Is it, is it uh, loperamide or? the combination medicine that I only know the brand name for, but like, <laughs> what do you, atropine, whatever, what do you uh, like yeah. to, what do you like to use for that? I do like to start with loperamide. It's just easy. It's, um, uh, usually easier for patients to get, right? I, I, mm -hmm. it, I don't, I really don't like dealing with insurance companies to be very, yeah. very honest with you. But the difference that I'll, I'll do with the loperamide is that I'll tell patients to schedule it. So often they'll tell me it didn't work. And that's because they're taking it according to the package instruction of take one after diarrhea starts and then, you know, thereafter. But I'll, I'll let them know that this is their pathophysiology. And it's the difference between trying to keep a horse in the barn and then trying to rein in a horse after it's already out of the barn. So scheduling the loperamide tends to be better than trying to chase the diarrhea after it's already out when it's a chronic issue. She just said chasing <laughs> diarrhea, Paul. It's Chase late at night. I'm, yeah. I'm having trouble keeping a straight face. Iris, why, why need to? Like, and, there's and no Biz need to keep a straight face. <laughs> We're having fun. We're talking about poo. <laughs> Iris, is uh, bismuth also uh, something that you find for these patients uh, to, as maybe a second line or just loperamide is generally sufficient? 
I try really, really hard to diagnose them with something else, to be honest with you, right? Bile acid malabsorption, and then I'm giving them cholestyramine if they have microscopic colitis. Actually, I will use bismuth for that. That is actually for, okay. for like one of the frontline treatments. Um, sure. Otherwise, I will try bismuth, but often I'm not finding a lot of success with it. And patients, okay. they just really don't like it. I mean, it just doesn't taste great. Okay. And so I can't, uh, I, I can't force them to keep trying it. Well, lucky for our patient here, uh, we'll 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 wrap up this case, Miss Cruz. She she was in she was she was in the area. She she was lucky enough to have you as her physician. She had some hypnotherapy, and uh, you know just just felt better after that. And symptoms symptoms are managed. Maybe she's using some peppermint now and again. And and with this gastroenteritis, the people that have the post-infectious type, does that tend to go away as opposed to somebody who has more of an idiopathic um, cause of it? I think they're more likely to res- to resolve. And it's about like 30% of them will respond completely. Uh, they'll like resolve spontaneously. 30% will need some sort of therapy to help and 30% persist. Okay. So let's let's get on to the, the final case here, cyclic vomiting. Paul, did you want to... Did you want to take that one? I mean, I mean, you, you already gave out the diagnosis, but I suppose I can at least read it to get us there. But so we'll talk about Mr. Banks. He's a 27-year-old, and I was told, I, I guess you can't be 27 years old and a gentleman, so just male, um, with a past medical history significant for generalized anxiety disorder on citalopram, presenting to your clinic as a referral from the emergency department after presenting with recurrent nausea vomiting episodes requiring IV medications to alleviate emesis over the past year. He does not drink alcohol. He rarely smokes cannabis. The symptoms of nausea, emesis, and abdominal pain last for about five days, and they recur every few months. Hot showers do seem to alleviate the symptoms, however. So already, you know, Matt's steered us straight into the the oncoming traffic of cyclic vomiting syndrome. There is this sort of hot shower they once looked at a joint, and now, so we have to assume that it's cannabis-associated hyperemesis. So could you could you talk us through the two diagnoses and sort of how how they're related and how they're different? Because I feel like they're they're often talked about as if they're the same thing, and it sounds as if maybe they're not. Absolutely. And I I feel like at one point in time, I didn't even realize that cyclic vomiting syndrome was its separate condition. I thought everything was related to the cannabis. And, and it's really not. So um, cyclic vomiting, it has a Rome 4 criteria, right? So at least three discrete episodes in the prior two years, two episodes in the past six months occurring at least one week apart. But the kicker here, right, is absence of vomiting between episodes, and other milder symptoms can be present. So they don't have to feel their best, um, but they're not vomiting between episodes. And this is very different than patients with like functional nausea and vomiting where they feel sick almost all the time. These patients in between episodes feel fine and they think that their disorder is gone and then all of a sudden it hits again. The other big component of CVS or um, cyclic vomiting syndrome is this family or personal history of migraines. And it's really, and sometimes, you know, they're actually kind of compared to abdominal migraines because even though it's called cyclic vomiting syndrome, it can come with abdominal pain. Um, The other important thing to note here is both cyclic vomiting syndrome and cannabis hyperemesis syndrome can have relief from hot showers. So you cannot diagnose cannabis hyperemesis just from the hot shower alleviating the symptoms. Otherwise, the cannabis hyperemesis really like you you have to have used cannabis 
uh, for a prerequisite, right, for the suspicion. But what we're finding is it's actually quite prolonged use. So, you know, usually it's not the occasional or rare cannabis user who's developing cannabis hyperemesis. It's the chronic users who smoke a significant amount kind of over time and on a regular basis who are developing this problem. But to keep things really, you know, confusing for everyone, patients with cyclic vomiting syndrome tend to present relatively young and they know that cannabis helps prevent the nausea. And so then they start using the cannabis because they were previously nauseous. And then it becomes this cycle of, you know, you really have to dig back into that history to say, well, when did that nausea actually start? So that you're not just labeling them with cannabis hyperemesis um, when they were actually using the cannabis to try to treat this underlying disorder. But now the two have gotten all mixed up. I, I actually, I, I thought they were totally separate things. I, I didn't really realize, but I, I have seen patients where you're not sure if it's the fact that they're smoking every day that came first or the nausea and vomiting came first. And in some cases, a couple of patients that I'm thinking of from the, the past few years, they, they couldn't even really tell me clearly which, which came first. And they, 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 at that point, they felt that the, they had to smoke to try to mm -hmm. help with their nausea. Yeah. And sometimes I will tell them, you know, I, I know you've heard this, that you have to quit the marijuana. Listen, I'm not blaming it on the marijuana, but I will tell you that it is not helping, that it helped in the beginning, but now you are almost dependent on it to treat the symptom and we have to take it away. But that's kind of like asking someone to stop smoking, right? You can't just take it away. You have to help support them while you're trying to get them off their other, you know, treatment option, basically. How long... I read, I always thought it was maybe a month off, but I, I was reading maybe even six months you have to take to tell them to, to stop. And for someone with a daily yeah. habit, that can be pretty tough. There's no consensus guideline on how long you have to tell them to stop. And so I kind of, you know, I, I will tell them that it can be months. And I think six months is not unreasonable. Um, I, I have sometimes used, and, and this is kind of a weird, <laughs> I wish Elena were here. Um, I kind of have used sort of like relationship breakup guidelines, right? Like you, it, how long does it take you to get over a relationship? Well, it's like at least half the time you spent in the relationship. Well, I use the same kind of principle. If you've been smoking marijuana for a decade, this is not going away in two months. You know, you yeah. have to be clear for a little bit longer. But that's sort of a a, a wishy-washy kind of patient counseling thing. I like it. Though. There's that's no good. guideline. That's good. Okay. That's, <laughs> Paul that's, is not Paul, amused. That's, that's expert opinion if I've ever heard it, Paul. <laughs> no, that's terrific. And I, I'm just I'm just thinking because I feel like I don't know. It's when we were coming up in training a million years ago when we were doing therapeutic leeches and and tree finding and stuff. <laughs> Like they, that was just when they were started talking about this cannabinoid associated hyperemesis. And then as soon as everyone heard about it, they became so excited to diagnose people with it. But I just wonder how many patients were misdiagnosed with that just because you had, you know, like, you know, it's it, marijuana use is so prevalent. And so you hear just some sort of vague history of marijuana use, then they have sort of this recurrent episodes of vomiting. I just wonder how many patients unfortunately got saddled with the diagnosis just because it's appealing and you also get to sort of maybe put a little bit of moralism on top of it too. Not yeah. that this has anything to do with what we're talking about, but just, just spitballing here. No, but it can be definitely stigmatizing. And, and this also plays into how you counsel a patient and how you approach a patient with this. 
because there's, you know, they, they already know, they've heard this, right? They've heard that you're just going to blame the weed and not treat them. And so it's really important to, to make that alliance to say, I am here to help you, whether or not marijuana was the reason, right? Uh, on the flip side, you know, ED visits for nausea and vomiting in Colorado have doubled since marijuana was legalized. Oh, interesting. And so there is certainly something there. Um, but how many patients are misdiagnosed? I don't know, because they are a very similar population. It's young patients who are probably also, you know, in, in the time of their lives where they're experimenting with things because they weren't big nerds like me. <laughs> Iris, we, we had a listener from, I believe this is Instagram, Seema Jaga, who asked about, like, what are the most common etiologies for hyperemesis? They see this a lot uh, in inpatient side of things. Is there, we talked about the differential, is it is it cyclic vomiting, is it cannabis, but what else do you think about for these patients? What's the diagnostic workup or framework for this? Oh, gosh. Um, vomiting is a really, it's one of those diagnoses that like gives me heart palpitations, right? Because nausea as a symptom, like we can talk about that probably for another hour. Like there's so many other things it can be, especially when it's bad enough to get someone admitted to a hospital. So for me, I always try to rule out not GI, right? Is the patient, is there like some sort of brain ideology that you have to worry about? Is the patient pregnant? Um, do we have some other, uh, you know, electrolyte abnormalities or disturbances. I think about like, so you, you, I don't know if we have time to talk about all of this, but for me, the pathophysiology of nausea, right? We think about smooth muscle distension. So like which piece of smooth muscle in your internal organs is being distended right now? Any of them will cause nausea. So that's why gallstones cause nausea. That's why when you have kidney stones, you get nausea. That's why gastroparesis gives you nausea. And so it, the, the differential is so broad that it is really hard to kind of give a, I, I don't have my heuristic algorithm necessarily unless I that's see a patient. That's probably why these patients end up getting CAT scans. Yep. and uh, GI consults. These patients, yeah, CAT scans and GI consults. And do, do these typically, I guess the first time someone presents with this, if it's intractable nausea and vomiting, most of these patients are going to get imaging and oftentimes mm -hmm. they might get some, they might get an endoscopy. Uh, but what else, do, what else do you think of? Like, is, does gastroparesis overlap with this? Is that something that people confuse for this? We talked about that overlapping with functional dyspepsia. Yeah, it certainly can. Um, and nausea and vomiting kind of in the setting of eating, I think it's always reasonable to do a gastric emptying study, but that's an outpatient workup. It's mm -hmm. um, kind of generally relatively uncommon for that to suddenly appear as intractable nausea and vomiting, right? And so nausea and vomiting as a symptom, you kind of have to think about like, is this acute? Is it chronic? Is it kind of a, a change or is this something insidious? Does it come with pain? Does it come with other symptoms? Is it morning? Is it um, postprandial? Is it, you know, recurrence or is it cyclic? And so there's a lot of like history that goes into um, trying to work up the nausea. Okay. I'm trying to get and, myself invited back, apparently. <laughs> okay, so we might have to do a, a nausea a nausea episode to follow up. Somebody somebody mentioned and are there are there action plans that are created for these patients? There's there was this was on Twitter, Pat Reeves was mentioning a 
CVS action, it's CVSA online, like a cyclic vomiting syndrome action plan online, which is a nonprofit that exists I had never heard of. I actually um, looked at that action plan and it's beautiful. I love it. I'm going to start using it. Um, I usually kind of draw it out for my patients in, in chicken scratch. So, so this is like beautiful. Um, and so that kind of goes into a little bit about cyclic vomiting syndrome, right? And how it presents. And so we actually think about cyclic vomiting syndrome in phases. So there's four different phases of CVS. Phase one is kind of the um, inner episode time when the patients are feeling really, really well. Phase two is a prodrome where they usually can feel like that vomiting is about to start or that nausea is about to start. Phase three is the actual episode of kind of intractable nausea and vomiting. And phase four is the recovery period when when they're settling out. And this might sound very uh, familiar to a lot of folks because this is how migraines are thought about, right? And this goes into why cyclic vomiting syndrome is kind of come, sometimes tends to come with folks who have this history of migraine headaches, either in themselves or their family. And we actually treat it very similarly. So in the inter-episode um, phase or phase one, our goal is to prevent an episode from happening. And we can actually use migraine prophylaxis to do this, including kind of amitriptyline, propranolol, and even um, ciproheptidine, which is a really good medication for nausea of all, of all etiologies. In the prodromal phase, our our um, kind of thought is to stop the episode before it happens, right? So things like lorazepam, this is when you're doing the sublingual Zofran, analgesics, and a triptan can sometimes help, especially if there's a headache component to that prodrome. So you're actually, you know, doing very similar things to migraine prevention. During an episode, often... Um, uh, patients with cyclic vomiting and, and C, uh, CHS or ca- cannabis hyperemesis as well don't respond very well to our routine antiemetics, but IV Zofran can help. Oh, sorry, IV Ondansetron, right? Lorazepam has been used for these episodes as well as clopromazine, diphenhydramine, um, et cetera. And these are usually kind of being given it, not necessarily PO. So sublingual IV um, PR, you know, kind of rectal because patients are having trouble keeping the medication down. So if you're making them swallow a pill, um, it's not going to work as well. Sometimes um, patients take sedatives so that they're kind of asleep, right? Just like in migraine headaches until the episode passes and then they recover. Um, Sometimes if it's bad enough that they're hospitalized, we're using IV proton pump inhibitors. We're using IV fluids to try to get them through that acute episode. Um, some evidence for haloperidol as well as like a second line medication. Um, right. When, like yeah. pro, pro, prochlorperazine mm-hmm. and uh, haloperidol, these antipsychotics seem to have some nausea benefit, yep. uh, the earlier generation ones anyway. Yeah, absolutely. Paul, are you raising your hand to ask a question or? I have to scratch my forehead. Just, Just scratching your forehead. Audience, Paul is scratching his forehead. Sorry for the interruption. <laughs> <laughs> Well, so there's a lot of options here. I think pr- probably uh, probably people are very comfortable with ondansetron, but I think sometimes people forget that these other things, like you mentioned antihistamines, mm-hmm. and we talked antipsychotics, benzos, 
and uh, trypt and those can all have antiemetic properties. Mm-hmm. And then you mentioned because there's some migraine overlap, the tryptans can also be used and probably intranasal or sub Q, right? Because they might not be if they're vomiting, they're just going to vomit up if you give them the tablets. Well, you want to give so the tryptans are really good for aborting the episodes, and so you want to do it when they're kind of having their prodrome. And not when they're okay. already vomiting. So so then your yeah. options are a little bit more wide. So if you can prevent that episode mm-hmm. from happening, which is why you have the action plan, right? So that if you're giving patients like these four different medication options, you want them very clear. Like this is when you use this. This is when you use that. When you feel your program right. coming on, you reach for this. Um, there are other it- sort of uh, heavy duty antiemetics like a pripotant that have been used in severe cases. So the propitan is a medication that has been proof, uh, approved for chemotherapy-induced nausea and vomiting. But sometimes it's like one of the only things that will work PO for these patients with severe vomiting. And so um, we apply for insurance exceptions and, and we try to provide patients with a way to stay out of the emergency department. This This condition just really, I, I feel that the the patients with this condition, they they definitely get stigmatized when they're admitted recurrently. the The hospital starts to know them. And um, sometimes when they have a heavy pain component and they're getting IV pain medications plus all these other uh, IV medications for it just um, I, I feel like these patients have a tough time. As far as like just counseling or non-pharmacologic, how, do you do you have any tricks, uh, tips for the audience if they're working as a hospitalist and seeing a lot of these patients? I think that if they have cyclic vomiting syndrome, right, there, there's no cannabis involved, often it's a little easier, right, because there isn't that stigma associated. And then even though they're kind of the same patient population, people feel bad and then take care of them and, and it's not such a problem. Um, when they come in with a lot of pain, certainly, but I think that kind of uh, making sure that they have a good outpatient provider who they have a therapeutic relationship with. And then if they come in with a good plan, right, I think it's easier for everybody involved to say, hey, this is what my outpatient provider and I came up with. I'm very kind of, it's like patients who have a, a pain contract, right? This is what works for me. I'm not trying to ask for more, um, but to make sure that the patients know kind of uh, what's safe for them and to develop that relationship with an outpatient provider so that they have a plan, whether it's inpatient or outpatient, and a person to call and notes to refer back to to help kind of anchor their diagnosis. When it's a when cannabis is involved, I think it becomes a lot more complicated because there is a lot of bias. And so I think working with patients to help them understand that this is beyond sort of the the marijuana use, right? That this is a condition that you are suffering, but like it or not, the cannabis is playing a role and you're not telling them this while they're acutely vomiting. Like they're not going to listen. And this is, you know, it's just not helpful information, right? Um, You treat them, you take care of the patient as they need to be taken care of. And then when they're in that recovery phase and ready to leave is when you uh, when I would sit down and have that conversation and say, I, you know, this isn't good for you. You can't keep coming back like this. I know how hard it is, right, to ask you to just quit this and keep being without a crutch that you have been using. So let's figure out a way to kind of uh, almost do the same as like addiction management, right, to try to get them off mm-hmm. cannabis. 
and these patients they're they're feeling okay between episodes but if they're having frequent episodes what we talked about so far they might be on a beta blocker mm-hmm. like propranolol or TCAs to try to prevent and then the they may have something like lorazepam lorazepam or a triptan in the prodrome phase to try to abort something before it gets out of hand. But then if they're admitted, they're going to be getting all these IV antiemetics and um, maybe maybe pain medication as well. Um, anything else that you think is important for the audience to know about the, the treatment? Um, I, I think we need to start to wrap up here. Uh, and this has been great. Uh, covered a ton of ground, and this this cyclic vomiting stuff is very new ground for me. So I really uh, appreciate that. I think there was a kind of question that had uh, come up. So if patients aren't able to discontinue the cannabis, like what do you do? Right, you can't just keep telling them over and over without another option. So Haldol has been tried in the trials to to treat the patients kind of through the cannabis use, and that has been helpful. And then we just treat them like cyclic vomiting. We give them the same plan. We try to kind of teach them about the phases and try to help them get through the episodes while cutting back. Because cutting back is still better than um, continuing, right? And eventually you may be able to get them to kind of cut back to a, a point where they can stop. But unfortunately, they have to be completely off for you to be able to tell whether this is gonna resolve completely or whether there's going to be an underlying cyclic vomiting syndrome component, in which case we treat. Yeah, trials for that also kind of in development, not by me, but other people. We're going to be, and, and we'll we'll be uh, in just a couple of weeks here recording a cannabis episode and awesome. talking about a little bit about cannabis use disorder. I'm not sure how much how much we'll be able to give solutions because from my pre-reading there's they've tried a lot of different things uh, but so far it's it's a lot of just like hypothesis generating stuff not necessarily any slam dunk for for treating it yeah uh, other than like cbt and uh hypnotherapy so uh, hypnotherapy we'll send them to you for hypnotherapy i can't do that (laughs) yeah Well, with our with our patient here, uh, Mr. Banks, we we bring him into the uh, into the hospital and get him through it with all this cocktail of medicines that that you you told us about, and then we develop a nice action plan and make sure we hand off to Dr. Paul Williams, who is a fantastic primary care doctor and very good at rapport building. Uh, so sure it's what I do. It's who I am. <laughs> Uh, Iris, if you had to give the audience some take-home points for what has been a whirlwind tour of of disorders of the gut-brain axis, how are we pronouncing that, Paul? I, I, a different way each time. I try not to, I think is the answer. <laughs> Digba. Uh, it's better than the other <laughs> one. This is why. Thank you for illustrating my point. <laughs> okay. Uh, Iris, take-home points whenever you're yeah. ready. So I would start with When you see one of these patients, take a deep breath, check your assumptions at the door. These are not psychosomatic or conversion disorders. Patients are suffering and they need you to listen. And if you listen, those patterns will emerge and it will be easier to identify one of these disorders in a positive light as opposed to ruling out. Be positive uh, or be confident in your positive diagnosis. So these don't have to be a workup for exclusion. But even if you do undertake a workup, bring up this concept early so that it doesn't come up as an afterthought or as a nothing else is wrong. So it must be this diagnosis. 
remember that the placebo effect is super high in these disorders and that CBT works. But both of those things, the patient following through and the placebo effect are predicated on their confidence in you as their ally and in your diagnosis that this is what they have. And so it's, you know, explaining why you are sending a patient for this or why you are prescribing this for this disorder is so key and really helps it work. These are heterogeneous disorders. So the treatment is not gonna be a one size fits all but certain symptoms will, will really respond to certain treatments better. And so your good history is a key. And the last thing that we really kind of didn't quite mention, but we've touched upon is that th these are multidisciplinary managements, right? You want to get your dietitian involved, a psychologist involved, and really have a team approach for managing these patients. And, you know, use the room for if you need the uh, actual diagnostic criteria. <laughs> Anything that you wanted to plug before we fade into the outro? <laughs> Any resources, uh, courses for hip becoming a hypnotherapist, anything like that? Yeah, so a couple of things. Um, so Rome has a psychogastroenterology section with an excellent website that has a find a provider option by zip code. So that's where I send a lot of my patients to find a psychologist to help them with CBT. Um, digital therapeutics are really going to be a game changer. Watch for them coming onto the market. They're actually getting FDA approval now. Um, as therapeutic options. And then the last website that I'll mention is ash.net, so A-S-C-H.net. And this is the uh, accrediting society for hypnotherapy training. They will only train licensed providers. So you cannot be like average, uh, you know, random person off the street who wants to do show hypnosis. They will not train you. But also on that website is a kind of find a provider option so that you can help send your patients um, to those uh, appropriate um, resources. And, you know, um, you can cut this last part if you want, but my children's book needs a publisher. <laughs> we will not cut that. Nope, that this is, is the place for self-promotion. Yeah, <laughs> expecting a percentage. All right. I, I'm going to stop. I'm going to stop the recording. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy? Oh, just like old times. Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com, and while you're there, sign up for our mailing list to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. Plus, twice each month, you'll get our new Curbsiders Digest, recapping the latest practice-changing articles, guidelines, and news in internal medicine. And we're committed to high-value, practice-changing knowledge, and to do that, we need your feedback, so please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts, or contact us at thecurbsiders at gmail.com. A reminder that this and most episodes are available through VCU Health at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. And a special thanks to our writer and producer for this episode, who we sorely miss tonight, Dr. Elena Gibson, and to our whole team, Beth Garbs Garbatelli, still our executive producer, Paul, for a little while before we have to let her go off to residency. Elizabeth Proto runs our social media. Tima Karganov does the website. And this episode was edited and produced with help from the team at Podpaste. And finally, Paul, Stuart Brigham composed our theme music. So with all that, until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. And as always, I remain Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams. Thank you and goodbye. Goodbye.